Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Gurr, and today we're going to have an incredible and fantastic episode, like always. So sit back and enjoy the episode we have. And it's a holiday. It is Columbus Day, not Indigenous People's Day on Highly Respected. But this is a holiday that we decided to work. You know, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue so we could work on his holiday to bring you even better content than the week before. So that is what we're going to be doing today. And there is a huge news event that we're going to be discussing today. That's probably going to be the only topic we have before the cognitive elite questions. I think the topic is going to be obvious and it's what's going on in Israel with Hamas's attack from the Gaza Strip on Israel and the geopolitical ramifications of that and what this will lead to. So unless you are living under a rock, I'm pretty sure most of you guys are aware of what happened is that Hamas launched a, an attack into Israel. It killed over 600 uh, Israelis, took a bunch of hostages. I think the number is over 100 hostages at the moment. And they attacked military installations and a music festival that was for some reason on the border of Gaza. Uh, not a wise decision to put a music festival there. And they took a lot of hostages from the music festival as well as from these military bases that they captured. And it's a huge humiliation for Israel for this to happen. Because the whole, whole thing about Israel is that it relies on how good its intelligence is. It's like, oh, you know, Mossad, you know, they always know everything that's coming. They could have seen this. And it's, you know, the, the Palestinian attack was absurd because <laughs> there was guys on you know gliders you know it's like Fortnite <laughs> flying into this music festival and flying into these military bases on this and it's like how did no one know that these guys <laughs> they were building this shit um and what they were going to use it for so it's a complete intelligence failure and i've always seen like people doing these conspiracy theories of saying like oh they knew it was going to happen they allowed it to happen it's, uh, no, this is a major humiliation for Israel that this was allowed to happen. It creates a very, um, it puts them in a difficult pickle uh, right now and what they can do or what they're going to respond to. And it's just not at all a, um, a good situation for Israel that they're in right now. Uh, and it's a huge win for a lot of their enemies. So, I don't know how they would have just like, oh, we're going to allow this to happen. This we'll just set it up. It's, you know, and, and the entire Israeli population is is angry at the military and the government for allowing this to happen. It's like, how could you allow this to happen? This is uh, a major blow to us. So, no, I don't believe any of the type of conspiracy. I think it's just so wild that this happens. It really does um, create an, a new impression of what Israel is capable of and whether, you know, some of the hoopla around its intelligence work is maybe um, not at all it's cracked up to be. So there's a lot to see here. And this is a huge world, new, uh, world news event. I mean, this, this could very well lead to a major war breaking out in the Middle East. Could very well drag America into that. That's very bad. We obviously do not want American involvement in any war, especially another one in the Middle East. And so we have all these issues that are going around it. So I think going into this is like, why would this attack happen now? What is driving this attack? Because a lot of people were wondering that. It's like, why would Palestinians, you know, all of a sudden want to do this? You know, there's always obviously the animosity towards hostility towards Israel is there. They're, 
You know, any time is a good time for that. But why this particular time? And I think a real motivation behind this is, you know, there was a weird Wall Street Journal report that came out yesterday saying that Iran ordered this and directed it. I don't know how accurate that is, but it is to the benefit of Iran. I mean, and this could have been seen, obviously, by Ayatollah Khamenei. Uh, basically, when he was watching these clips, he was sharing about how epic it is and uh, only head of state in the world who was like, this is awesome. And so it's the fact that, you know, your head of state is sharing these videos and talking about how great it is. And Iranians themselves were seeming pleased with this. Maybe they weren't the ones who, you know, Palestinians had taken it on the own initiative, but certainly they were not um, displeased by Hamas doing this. Because the whole thing is, is that, you know, over the last few years, Israel has been normalizing relations with all these Arab countries. And there have been in, you know, tough negotiations with normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia. That happens, that's a, that's a big deal in the region, and Iran doesn't want that. It would signal that every Arab government is essentially fine with Israel. It's not going to offer any support to the groups that are in Palestine that are you know, agitating for the overthrow or attacks on Israel, that they are just going to accept Israel as a part of the Middle East, which is obviously against what Iran wants and is against actually what a lot of the Arab majority wants. But this is what their governments, um, you know, are pursuing because they feel they can get something from America and concessions that would make up for it. And Saudi Arabia is asking a lot for America in order to agree to normalization with, with Israel. They're asking for U.S. to help them build a civilian nuclear program, which America is not fond of. They're asking for, you know, strict security guarantees that if they ever get attacked, America would come to its aid. Um, I don't know if the Congress would be up for that. And also they're demanding concessions for the Palestinians from the Israelis, which uh, is unlikely to happen <laughs> now with the latest events going on in the Gaza Strip and Israel. So it's upended that uh, that possible normalization because that would be a huge deal. Now, at the same time, Iran and Saudi Arabia have normalized relations or have built up diplomatic relations. And this that's a huge event. And that's just happened in the last year. One of the biggest foreign policy events is that because pretty much for the entirety of the 2010s, the Middle East was dominated by the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The Syrian war was a proxy war between them, even though there were other foreign actors also involved in there that had their own agenda. But you could see see the main storyline as it is a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, with Saudi Arabia backing a large part of the Islamist uh, rebels. Uh, not quite ISIS, but the other ones. They were nobody really liked ISIS, um, but a lot of the other Islamist rebels and Iran backing the Assad regime. The Assad government. So that was the conflict there. And they've had another proxy war in Yemen with Saudi Arabia backing the government and Iran backing the Houthi rebels. And so they, they've been having these proxy wars all over the Middle East. And this has been the rivalry that has dominated. But China brokered a, you know, a cooling off between the two countries. And the countries appear to be having normalized relations with each other now, which is thought impossible just a few years ago and so they're not at you know loggerheads like they once were 
So, but at the same time, Iran does not want Saudi Arabia to have this normalized peace deal. And Iran has, you know, not been as committed to securing that tor- that normalization as other states, you know, because the big deal was like UAE doing it and a few other Gulf states then merging. Uh, Qatar is not one of the Gulf states that's trying to normalize relations. Qatar is also, or Qatar, you want to say. I've always been told it's like Qatar, or Qatar. Uh, that's the way to pronounce it. I prefer Qatar, but it's Qatar, so we'll call it Qatar. Um, <laughs> that's a way to say it. But Qatar is the uh, is also a state that was also likely helping out the Hamas. A lot of their leadership is dwelling in Qatar. And difference between Qatar and Iran is that we have a military base in Qatar, or America does, and we have you know normal fairly normal relations with them which we obviously don't with iran but Qatar is also one of the state sponsors of these groups and they're also not eager to see the rest of the arab world normalize relations with israel and now israel's been doing this for years and years i mean ever since the late 70s where they you know normalized relations with egypt and then they went on and normalized relations with jordan uh, you know, that's been a long-term goal for them. And they've been continuing to do that with more of the Muslim world in the last few years. And Saudi Arabia would be the you know crown jewel of that effort. And it's likely not going to happen now. I doubt it because, I mean, Israel is going to, as they keep saying, like, we're going to, you know, drop hell on, on Gaza Strip. And this is obviously going to agitate the Arab world. And this could even up and... Uh, the past peace deals they've made with other countries and, you know, further isolate them in the Middle East. And, you know, Israel's, and this is why it's not a good situation for Israel, because Israel has to respond much more so than just firing rockets in the Gaza Strip. You know, they have hundreds of, you know, they have over 100 hostages. They humiliated them on the world stage and the people, their people are baying for blood. So they're obviously going to go into Gaza and, um, you know, try to do what they can to make an extra statement. But it's not going to be an easy battle for Israel because it's, you know, it's going to be urban guerrilla fighting that they're going to have to wage. The entire population of Gaza Strip is going to be against them, you know, 2 million people. And it's not like Hamas is a normal army, you know. This is a paramilitary group that's among the civilian population. So they're going to have to go from building to building, which a lot of civilians are there. And, you know, there's obviously going to be clips showing them of, you know, dead civilians and other and other types of things that people say are war crimes. And this is not going to look good for Israel on the world stage. And you're seeing this outpouring of support for Israel right now, you know, from, you know, most of the world. But that could easily dissipate depending on what happens with this conflict, which you're obviously going to see things that, you know, European governments aren't going to approve of that Israel's going to be involved in. And it's, and depending on how long this lasts, it's going to be a more difficult situation for Israel. And also Hezbollah is threatening to retaliate if they, you know, invade Gaza Strip. So there, this war could easily expand to Lebanon and it could expand to a full on regional war, uh, with Iran possibly formally entering. I don't know how, uh, you know, a war between Israel and Iran would work because they're separated by uh, a lot of countries. Um, You know, they don't share a border with each other, obviously. 
But it would be, you know, obviously uh, uh, Iran would be helping out a lot of the people who would be fighting Israel. So it's a messy situation as is, and it's likely to get more messier. So what is, you know, then, so I don't think Israel would have liked this situation at all. And I mean, I mean, the more important thing is that, you know, a lot of the, what Israel built its foundation on as a state is just showing that how intimidating, uh, you know, Mossad is in their intelligence work, that they can assassinate their enemies all across the world. And they've done this uh, to Hamas leaders, you know, that for years and years, they would find like a Hamas leader, like staying at a hotel and they'd send a hit squad and murder them. Uh, there was also one of the a couple of people who were working on the nuclear program in Iran who got assassinated either by drone strikes or other means. So they were always able to get, uh, you know, they're even hacking some of the programs and, and causing destruction with that. And so they were able to build up this mystique. And the fact that they, you know, missed this, which is just massively embarrassing, as I said, you know, deflates that mystique. And that hurts their, you know, and that makes people more eager to attack. It's like, oh, you know, they miss this. You know, maybe we don't have to worry about Mossad and their intelligence work. Maybe we can continue on to do other things that we would like to uh, do against Israel and that this will inspire future attacks. So it's not it's not at all what Israel wants. And it's not quite prepared for a ground war. A ground war is very different from sending missiles. I mean, they're going to take in a lot of casualties from the type of street fighting that will happen in a ground war of this magnitude and there's going to be a ton of civilian casualties which is going to hurt their public standing in the world so they're going to be in a very difficult uh situation to say the least and it's also that the it's, you know they were they were you know they dragged their feet on giving supplies to ukraine but finally they did they gave up a lot of their artillery supplies i've been hearing reports that it's like 80 percent of their artillery supplies i don't know but they did give up uh, a substantial part of their artillery supplies, which this is one of the big issues with the Ukraine war and like modern military technology is that a lot of we really struggle to build the supplies necessary for modern warfare of a of a large scale like what we saw in the world wars. And that's really what we're seeing in Russia uh, and the Ukraine war is that all these countries are just scrounging to find supplies to send over to Ukraine, and it's depleting their own uh, arsenal and leaving them, uh, you know, if there was, they got no war, they would not be able to wage a war because a ton of their supplies have gone to Ukraine. And they're not able to replenish those supplies uh, quickly at all. And that's what's happened in Europe, is that Europe's pretty much cleared out a lot of their warfare or uh, war arsenal. Uh, to help out the Ukrainians and Israel, you know, was dragging its feet and then it's gave up some of its arsenal to the Ukrainians. And that's going to bring up an interesting fight is that Israel could be demanding more from America to replenish their supplies, depending on how you know long this war is and what what is needed. And America can't build, you know, can't fund two wars at the same time. And I'll have to pick whether it's going to go with Ukraine or Israel. And in this situation, I could see a lot of the intelligence world preferring, our American intelligence world, preferring to focus on Ukraine over Israel because a lot of what American foreign policy has been since Obama has been trying to pull America out of the Middle East. We've, we've had enough of the Middle East. We want to focus on China and Russia. 
Uh, for Trump, he didn't really want to focus on Russia. He just wanted to focus on China. But a lot of it was pulling America out of the Middle East. It's why Obama drew us out of Iraq and then was trying to get us out of Afghanistan. It was why Trump was trying to get us out of Afghanistan. And it's also why Biden got us out of Afghanistan is that a lot of the <clears throat> deep state in America wants to focus more on China and Russia. It does not want to get bogged down in the Middle East anymore. Uh, obviously, a, a war uh, involving Israel would get us involved in the Middle East once more, um, which is not what a lot of these powerful actors want. So they would not want to have, uh, if they had to choose the preference, they would probably prefer Ukraine. Military would want to fund both. They they want to fund everyone who's fighting war and they really hate Iran. They want to have a war with Iran, Russia and China at the same time. Uh, so there would be that. But politically, if you know, that was, you know, all these political leaders were given having to make a choice. They would obviously go with Israel. Israel is a far more powerful lobby in the United States than Ukraine. And so that is the weird thing that could happen is if there was a major Middle Eastern war is that we would probably tell Ukraine to, hey, it's like we we can't supply you anymore at this rate. You're going to have to cut a peace deal with Putin. Uh, we're we're no longer funding you. As they're going to have to make a choice. And there's not an infinite amount of uh, war war arsenal to go around. And so they're going to have to make a choice if, depending on what how much of the Israeli military supply is depleted. And they will, if that was made, had to make a choice for lawmakers, they would choose Israel. And that's going to be an interesting situation. Because I think one thing is... Uh, you know, even if they didn't have to make a choice, I think America is going to have to focus on this issue and they're not going to be able to, you know, they're not going to be as eager to, you know, write blank checks for Ukraine. And I could see America, even if Israel isn't demanding a type of supply and funding that the Ukrainians are, could they, America just in that situation is like, look, we're dealing with a lot of shit right now, Zelensky. You're going to have to make a peace deal. We've already gotten enough out of this war as is. We, you know, isolated Russia from Europe. We exposed the Russian military is not as strong as they as people thought. They're stuck with just the Donbass. I mean, that's not ideal for America. But like, you know, Ukraine can't kick them out, obviously, due to how uh, their counter their offensive this year failed completely. So they're just like, look, just recognize the Donbass and Crimea as Russia and whatever that war war we can't fund you anymore and i could very well see that if you know another major war breaks out of the middle east because uh we're we're going to be uh too uh focused on other things and i think unlike with uh so that's maybe one good thing about a middle eastern war breaking out is that it could end the ukraine war and then finally achieve peace there because the West can no longer, you know, write blank checks for Zelensky to, you know, blow all this money on idiocy. And then we're sending all our uh, military gear there. So that could be one positive thing. But the negative thing is, unlike with Ukraine, I do think that this is more likely to drag America soldiers into and a significant number. Obviously, we've had special forces guys and volunteers in Ukraine, but I'm talking like serious ground troop presence in the Middle East uh, over this conflict, which I think there's a greater chance of that, of American, direct American involvement than with 
Ukraine. And obviously, I know everyone's going to say, it's like, well, we directed these attacks and special force, as I said, special forces operators, but I'm talking like, you know, Iraq level involvement here. And that is the worst possibility that could, that could be achieved is why we need to do as much as possible to ensure that America does not enter the war. And that needs to be our clear position is that no American involvement in this Israeli conflict. It's already why, like, everyone's, like, demanding, like, we need to send a naval fleet there. Like, let's not send a naval fleet there. You know, some uh, one of these actors could strike the naval ships, and then that brings us into the war, and you don't want that to happen whatsoever. And that's what I'm more worried about. I think with, like, you know, Russia and Ukraine, is outside of the Ukrainians, Russia, you know, Putin is a very rational actor. Putin realized that he did not want to bring in NATO. And he realized the, the, the limits of what NATO would tolerate, and he stayed within those limits. That's why they weren't doing these shock and awe campaigns against the cities. They were trying to minimize civilian casualties to a degree. I mean, there's only so much you can do in urban warfare. Um, but they were not doing these like full bombing campaigns that we were doing in Iraq in 2003 and Ukraine. Part of that, part of that was to ensure that NATO wasn't in there, and part of that was also that they felt that they could win over some of the Ukrainian civilian population. They were also not committing, you know, they've always talked about the civilian uh, atrocities in, in Ukraine, which most of these, like both Russian, well, I don't know about the Ukrainians, but for most of the Russian, it's been accidental. Most of the atrocities have been against soldiers, against the POWs, which that's happened on both sides. Both of them have tortured and killed guys. Um, but those are combat participants. They really have tried to minimize the civilian casualties. It's not like what's going to happen in the Gaza Strip in Israel, where they're both going to try to rack up as many civilian casualties as possible because they, you know, they both want to exterminate each other. So, uh, which in Ukraine, they don't want to exterminate. I mean, both of them are competing over the civilian population to say, we're your liberators. You should side with us. And they're competing, they're fighting over the civilian population for their loyalty, which is a unique part of the war. I mean, we, <laughs> they're both saying that they're the liberators of the civilian population uh, and they're competing for their sympathy. So they've tried, both sides have not tried to, uh, you know, butcher the civilians in a way that we're probably going to see in the Gaza Strip. But to the larger point, that's also part that like Putin does not want to, he really did try to minimize the possibilities of having NATO and America intervene. And he realized that those limits and he was not going to cross that. Uh, here, I think both sides are not as rational as Putin and they will want to get America involved in this war for whatever reasons. I mean, Iran wants, you know, Israel obviously wants America involved, so we'll fight the war with them or fight the war for them. <laughs> it's maybe it'd be better and we'll take out Iran for them. Iran may want the war to bog down America and weaken it on a global stage, you know, because Iran, obviously Iran does not want it to be invaded by America, but to get them, say, you know, thousands of troops in Lebanon involved in a nasty guerrilla war, there against Hezbollah, you know, that would be, you know, Iran would love that. I mean, because we would not do well in that. I mean, we look at the guerrilla wars we've been having to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not. And it's also, you know, we have an experience of that when we send over the Marines in the early 80s to Lebanon and they got blown up by Hezbollah. You know, hundreds of Marines died uh, due to um, a Hezbollah explosion in a Marine base. So 
you know, we should not repeat history. But there's also that possibility of that happening, and that's further weakening uh, American global strength, and that would be in the interest of Iran. So both actors will try their best to try to get us involved, and that's why we need to do our best to not get involved in the conflict. But I'm more worried that it could happen because, one, there'd be more political support for direct involvement of America than there is for Ukraine. There is a lot of support for America to give you know, tons of money to Ukraine, or at least before, or at least in 2022. I mean, there was overwhelming support. It was about 80% of the population was like, yeah, funding. But in direct involvement, there was uh, never majority support for that. And also people would come, to, you know, and people would be like, oh, yeah, support a no-fly zone. Does that mean we're going to go into war with you with Russia? And they're like, uh, no. There was never the type of direct American intervention, that level of support. Now, funding for Ukraine, I've talked about this, is that, the prioritization of Ukraine is not as important as it is for our government and our idiotic political class, and it is for people on Twitter. For people like Ukraine, they've moved on. They just like don't care about it as much as they did in 2022. You know, they, they care much more about the economy. They care about immigration. They care about crime. They care about direct issues that directly affect them. Ukraine is not seen as an issue that directly affects them. And part of this is that we now see that support for continuing funding of Ukraine has dipped below 50%. I think it's uh, it's a plurality. It's still a plurality, but it's not good if it's not a majority that supports it. And it does show that enough that American people don't like the billions going to Ukraine. Um, and so that does create a groundswell of support if, like, you know, Biden decided to say, oh, okay, we spent enough on this. Zelensky, make a deal. That there would be a level, you know, Americans wouldn't be that outraged and they'd be too. And if they're going to be focused on anything foreign policy wise or globally wise, they're going to be focused on Israel. And so there was never that, you know, there were always these insane people on Twitter who would be like, it's time for America to involve itself in Ukraine. It's time to, you know, launch a direct attack on Moscow and all this stuff. But that was not shared by the majority of population with Israel, unfortunately, I do see that there could be, I don't know if majority, but a strong number of Americans who would want direct American intervention in over this. Now, war support of the level to getting the like ground level ground troops of, you know, 100,000 or, you know, a, a significant level of ground troop deployment of that magnitude you would not see majority support even in the Israeli conflict unless they attack a ship. So we, uh, we need to make sure that no uh, ship attacks happen. Uh, I laugh about that, but I am actually genuinely worried about that. I mean, well, this happened before <laughs> in Israeli conflict. So you do have to worry that, you know, and if that's why one reason I don't want the Navy there is that it opens up to... Uh, you know, both uh, both sides trying to attack those ships for their various uh, for their various um, motives to get us involved. And I think if there was something like that, if one of the actors attacked our ships or it was blamed on another side, you could say they would say, "Oh no, we got we have to go in now. Like this is the worst thing to ever happen. We've got to send in our troops." And if that happens, that's um, you could see majority support if something of that ha if it's like an attack on the mainland, you know, if the you know there's some type of terror attack that's blamed on 
you know, the, you know, Hamas or Hezbollah or whatever, or if there's attack on our ships or just some military or maybe a military base of some somewhere in the Middle East or Europe, you know, this is things we have to worry about. And you that could drag us in and that could possibly create majority support for us getting in. So I'm much more worried about the possibilities of us getting dragged into a war here than I was with, you know, Ukraine and all, you know, I, I've always supported, you know, us just making a deal with Russia. It's like Ukraine, the 1991 borders, it's, you know, those are just made up by the Soviet Union. You know, they made up the, the, so that Ukrainian social Soviet Republic. I mean, Ukraine is a real country, but like its borders, um, uh, you know, it was not set in stone that they deserve to have the 1991 borders till the end of time. A lot of those people think they're Russians. They speak Russian. They view, you know, they sympathize more with Russia. It was always a stupid um, partition of that country that was bound to re- lead into conflict. And there's always been conflict over Ukraine ever since it split off from the Soviet Union. So handing over, the smartest thing should have been to hand over territory to Russia, peace deal, Ukraine says never join NATO, you know, peace made. Uh, but we should have never escalated into war. But America felt that it it would score victory here and 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 primarily wanted to isolate Europe from Russia and then accomplish that. But now that they've accomplished that, it's like Ukraine, you know, they have all the you know they don't have an infinite money supply and infinite well war arsenal to send over to the ukrainians and they have to consider that and it's also that you know the taiwanese are also you know demanding a lot of these supplies too you know and preparing for a possible chinese invasion so you know america isn't uh, isn't a tree of made of money even though it may seem like it uh or or i said it's like money doesn't grow on trees but some people think that uh money does grow on american trees so they all try to shake the the branches to get as much as possible but I don't think it's going to. Um, so America is going to eventually reach a limit with Ukraine uh, there. But as the people were always like saying, like Ukraine is like, oh, this could lead to nuclear war and blah blah blah. That was assuming that Putin is an irrational actor, which he's not. Uh, you know, and some people, you know, a lot of people who are saying these claims are like huge Putin fans and huge Russian fans. It's like, look, I have a degree of respect for Putin. And I know that he's not an idiot and he knows that like having a nuclear war would just be terrible for himself. I mean, obviously terrible for the world. And he didn't want to avoid, he wanted to clearly avoid that. I mean, it did show him weak that he was not genuine in his threat about it. And America realized that it didn't have to worry about him using nukes. But at the same time, it showed him as a rational, uh, fairly decent actor, you know, on a world stage that it's like showing, showing somebody you can work with and it's not driven by insane ethnic you know blood feud like what's going to happen in the israeli conflict and that's like somebody you can work with but the thing is we want putin removed and we want a a week in russia and so we were unwilling to make a peace deal that's another issue is that with israel israeli conflict is that it's going to be a lot harder to get those sides to agree to a peace deal i mean even there we're trying to uh, there's a reports that we've been that America's trying to broker some type of peace deal with Hamas, and Hamas is like, "Hell no, we have the initiative. We're we want this," which shows that Israel wants, uh, you know, made their attack as provocative and as humiliating as possible to ensure that Israeli ha- has a full force response to this attack, which is what they want because they want to drag Israel into that war and to escalate it into a large Middle Eastern conflict, which could 
you know, scuttle relations with these other Arab countries and create greater level of support for the Palestinian cause. And this is their one time to do it because, I mean, if Saudi Arabia had normalized relations with Israel, make it a lot tougher for this type of attack to achieve maximum results. And they chose this time to do it. And they chose it at a time when Israel is, uh, you know, mired in, in brutal political conflict, internal political conflict. And it's not in the strongest states it's ever been. And they chose an opportune time and they went after a, a desert rave party, which was like tons of young people there, which also adds to the reason why there's wanting this uh, revenge is that they took, you know, hostage, all these young girls. I mean, obviously if that happened to any country and you see all these young women who are at a, a dance festival, that would obviously demand people to like full on war. I mean, I could only imagine if something like that happened in America, uh, depending on who's the actor <laughs> or what country would, uh, took them hostage. But I mean, there would be, you know, all these insane women would just be like, no, they're destroying what uh, our main goal in life is, is to go to these dance festivals and these, these music festivals. They're destroying our sense of security. We have to demand war. And so everyone and, you know, parents would be worried about their kids and stuff. So it's designed to have you know, create the most irrational response among Israelis and that they'll want blood because you can't be on it. You can't be like, oh, we're going to reach a peace deal. It's like, uh, no, they, they killed our, they killed our rave goers. They killed our musical festival goers. We can't allow, and they took them hostage. We can't allow that. And they also have families that are taken hostage and they're likely to show the clips of this. And this is obviously designed to make, to draw the most violent response from Israelis. They, uh, Hamas wants them to have a ground invasion of, of the Gaza Strip and Israel is pretty much bound to do that. And that will lead to retaliation from the Hezbollah and that could lead to Israeli troops going into Lebanon and uh, conflict spirals from there. Now, another thing, unlike the Ukraine war, I'm thinking that this has a greater possibility of hurting uh, American uh, world power uh, you know, some people I know there's already going to be anger at what the term I'm using, but the globalist American empire <laughs> will say that from America's global standing, because the one nation I could see jump in to intervene to uh, negotiate a peace deal would be China. And that's always the thing that I've wondered that would really hurt America's standing in Ukraine that could really turn that conflict into a major loss for or a, a significant loss for American global power is if China intervened and negotiated a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. As it would say that now Russia or China is the world's negotiator, is that you have a problem, you don't turn to America anymore, you turn to China. And I could see that this is a possibility more with China because all the, you know, these, you know, Iran and Qatar, uh, you know, have tie, strong ties, you know, good ties with China. They would also, you know, and also they have good ties with Saudi Arabia. Big one of our concessions that we want the Saudis to make that I doubt they would want to make is, and these normalization of relations with Israel is that they would uh, decouple themselves from China, and they don't want to really want to do that. But that's a demand we always are now making of our allies is that they decouple from China. It's what a lot of these Eastern European countries are doing that are you know, gung-ho for the war in Ukraine. They're all cutting ties with China. It's what 
uh, Maloney's government is doing in Italy as a way of showing deference to the GAE. That's what they're doing. But here, you know, China, you know, has better standing in the Middle East than, or at least popularity wise with the Arab population than America does. And America could, or China could come in and say, negotiate the deal that ends the war. And that would definitely hurt American global standing. That would signify that if you have problems or, you know, if we're looking for who's guiding and babysitting the world, it's no longer America, it's China. And that would be a huge problem for that. And also, you know, the whole Middle East, you know, all these countries that we had negotiated normalization of ties between if they all forsake those agreements, that's also a huge blow for America. And then these ties strengthen their relations with China and Russia, then that's not very good for America uh, or American, the global uh, global American empire, so to as it would say the GA, and it's not good for Israel either. So, well, obviously. So, but Israel also has um, decent ties with China, uh, much to the chagrin of Americans, uh, the American foreign policy blob. And if we got bogged down into a war, that would be really bad for America um, because there's no way we would win that. And we would take a lot of casualties too, and we would have no way of achieving anything that would resemble type of victory. And that would be a massive blow for America to be bogged down to into a war. And we wouldn't even have the type of tactical victories that we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, technically, you know, in Iraq, we easily defeated the Saddam regime and we left under, it's like we had a somewhat friendly government or like, okay, mission accomplished now, we can leave. And then ISIS came through and now that government is much friendlier with Iran than Saddam was. So I don't know if that was a huge victory. But even with Afghanistan, we were, you know, anytime we got in direct fights with, with the Taliban, we easily won. The problem is, is we couldn't win over the population to our, to our horrible government we had set up. And they were all, you know, how, what do you do when the population is majority on the side of the, the people you're fighting against? Well, you just leave and let them take over is what we saw in Afghanistan. But you wouldn't even have that. I think if we did get in these type of street to street fighting, you know, we wouldn't even take over that block of city. We'd be bogged down. We'd take tons of casualties, a amount of casualties that our population, our public could never um, tolerate. And so we would have to leave, you know, if we lost, say, 5,000 soldiers, you know, we would pull out. There, we would just pull out and leave and we'd be humiliated on a world stage. And that's um, and that would hurt, obviously, American global power. And that would be just terrible, bad all around. So that's also the, the worry that we have there. With, And I think that there's a greater chance of American involvement, direct American involvement of having gr troops on the ground in, in an Israeli conflict than there is with Ukraine, as I keep repeating myself on that. Now on to the domestic political situation with that. There's a few things to take in. One thing that is interesting that was not before, or I at least don't remember, is, is the amount of street protests in favor of Palestine. I don't remember this um, in past times when there had been, you know, uh, tensions rising up in, in, Pal uh, in, in that region and between Israel. I never saw this type 
large number of street protests. And now people are complaining about it. And it's like, well, you know why these people are doing it. And it's because you let them all in. It's like, what are you, you're complaining about this. It's like all these people who are like, oh, immigrants make America stronger. We need more immigration in Europe. And then they're like, I can't believe all these people are protesting in favor of Palestine. It's like, well, you let them in. Uh, you can't complain about it now. Uh, but that's like all those people. It's like, uh, and it's always, you know, I made those points back way back in the day when I was writing even for Radix. One of the articles I got in trouble with is that, you know, it's like people like neocons comparing, complaining about rising levels of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel uh, sentiment in Europe. And it's like, well, you guys were supporting the people who are bringing those sentiments to Europe. You know, you supported mass immigration to the continent and to America. And now you're complaining about that. And they're still doing this now. And it's like all these people are pro-immigration. And also some of these people are now complaining about it. We're celebrating these same Muslims, you know, uh, protesting school boards, you know, woke school boards and stuff. But now they're turning on. It's like the very a lot of them are the very same people are now uh, protesting against Israel, and protesting for Palestine. They're like horrified by this. It's like, look, this is obvious effects of mass immigration that are coming here. What do you what do you what do you expect? But that's another thing is that the Democratic Party's stance on Israel is a little bit more complicated than it was in the past. You know, in the past, you know, party moment, everybody was like, uh, you know, Israel uh, asked America to jump and America and American politicians ask how high. That's still largely the case for a lot of the political leaders, but also Democratic Party has a little bit more complicated relation. One, they're winning over a lot of these immigrant populations that are either extremely hostile to Israel or they don't give a shit about Israel like the Hispanics. And even a lot of the black community doesn't, just doesn't give a shit about this. And they're like, we need welfare for us like not to send over to, to the Middle East. And there are these arguments that are going that are now more popular about anti-colonialism and the feeling that, you know, the anti-settler stuff and all that that's become more common uh, on the left to demonize Europeans, you know, and... The left can use, the, or a lot of the pro-Palestinians can use that rhetoric to browbeat some of the Democrats into, you know, being reluctant, as reluctant to support Israel. Not not to the same extent uh, as they are to feeling that, like, whites should leave Australia or whatever, you know. But they, you know, that does have an effect on some number of them. So it creates it a little bit more problematic nature about Israel. And it's just that it's not as important to some of their major donors as it was 20 years ago. A lot of those donors who were, that was like their main issue. Have either gone to the Republican party or they've, you know, been old and died. So there's a different, there's a different level. You know, much, a lot of their major donors now are just focused on the social issues, you know, gay rights, uh, you know, feminism, that type of stuff. And it's not as important to him. And it's also that the fact is that I think the, you know, the intelligence agencies, I don't know about the Pentagon, but the intelligence agencies, I think, are a little bit... It's not like to say that they're good, but I think they're a little like aware that like getting direct American involvement in the situation is not going to be good for America. It's going... You know, there's like... They can realize like, you know, we did experience Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, having a direct military intervention here is not going to end well for America, so they may not be as eager to get America in. And of course, Democrats are more cooperative with those segments than um, even than, uh, than a lot of the Republicans, even though Republican leaders rely on them a lot. 
So they're not, they will definitely support Israel to, you know, if Israel demands more funding, mo- the vast majority of Democrats will support that, but they may not be as eager for direct military intervention as Republicans are. Uh, on the other side, unfortunately, Republicans are going to, you know, they're already acting like, you know, they're already using rhetoric that they would never use in an American context. And this is like cliche that people are have noticed this because even mainstream conservatives are noticing this is that a lot of conservatives who, you know, they cry over any migrant at the border and they're like, let these people in. I can't believe this. And then they even cry over over criminals in the city. And they're like, oh, they're doing this for various reasons. We should go easy on them. But when it comes to Israel, they turn into full bore racial exterminationists. They're like, we have to kill every, every they're you know, acting like that they have to glass pa- Palestine and glass the Gaza Strip and, and never let these people uh, be allowed to be live again. And it's just an odd re- reaction to foreign conflict. It's like, this doesn't involve you. This doesn't involve anything. Why are you, you know, bra- you know, chest thumping over this? It's very a weird reaction, but they've always had this. And it is a transference of this type of tribalism and this desire for violence against uh, enemies that they're not allowed to have in America. So they transfer that to Israel and its and its conflicts and its enemies. And that doesn't really um, make sense. And it's not really in America's interest, but that's how Republicans are. That's a lot, a lot of how conservatives. I'm just seeing all this type of rhetoric. It's like war now, kill them all and all this stuff. And it's like they would never say that about anything involving America or American problems. You know, and, you know, I even seeing like David French, who has been complaining about every, you know, Republican racism and Republicans being xenophobic and stuff. And then he immediately turns into, you know, racial extermination, race, race warrior when it comes to Israel. And it's like, oh, I wonder why. And there's so many, there's unfortunately a large number of conservatives. But the other more unfortunate aspect is what Republicans will do in this. And I, I tweeted about this is that. Republicans have, you know, been having a battle over the budget and, you know, they've tried to figure out the issue that they want to fight over with 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 Democrats on this. And they've largely settled on that they should do something about border security and border security should be their number one priority. And it seems a large number of the House Republican caucus and a lot of Republican senators agree with this. The problem is, is now with Israel that they would could easily uh, ignore the border now. And say that their whole concern with the budget is ensuring that Israel gets more money. Now, this could have the one unintentional positive effect is that means that they all want funding cuts for Ukraine or at least a a larger number of Republicans will demand that. I mean, leadership will obviously, you know, demand an unlimited amount of money for Ukraine like Mitch McConnell and those guys. But a larger number of Republicans than before would be demanding maybe that um, insisting on that than before and so that could lead to you know america finally telling Zelensky to take a hike and figure out his own peace deal at the same time that would mean that we're not going to give any money for border security and we're going to uh, intervene ourselves into a conflict that would be very bad for america and so that's not very so it'd mostly be bad but there is one a possible positive thing that could happen from that. And you even see that. And, you know, no Republican, the only Republicans who would resist greater funding for Israel would be Thomas Massey and Rand Paul. 
all these rebels who have been fighting against McCarthy and stuff, they would all be demanding for more money for Israel. I was about to say Ukraine. But even like the guys who've been demanding like funding cuts for Ukraine, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and people like that, they would all be demanding more money for Israel. And they would be making this argument like instead of spending on Ukraine, we should be spending money on Israel, which the uh, sad fact is, is that argument would have a lot of cachet among Republicans and, and ordinary Republican voters, unfortunately. So that's what that's the real the domestic political ramifications I see are mostly negative is that it would lead to Republicans being even more insane on Israel. It would could lead to Republicans demand their only demand in the budget fight is that more money goes to Israel and they forget about the border. They no longer care about the border. They just care about Israel's borders. And the it, as the other the only positive thing, but I don't think that the trade-offs are worth it, is that they would that you'd see a larger number of Republicans demanding an end to funding for Ukraine in order that they could spend more money on in Israel, which is not really a great thing, but I guess it's something that would happen. I don't think the trade-offs are worth that, but I could see that happening. Um, that's a possibility, but I think leadership in both parties would just say that we need to fund both. Um, but I think there would be a greater number of Republicans who would demand money, more, uh, us cut funding for Ukraine to give it to Israel. I could see a number of Democrats who would just say we we can't spend this much on, on Israel. We have to spend money on, on Ukraine, which I think a lot of their base cares more about Ukraine than they do with Israel um, for weird reasons. But that's just what it is. And so it's going to be a messy situation all around. We're definitely going to pay attention to it uh, later on and highly respected. Um, I generally don't think the situation is going to be very good for us over, uh, for domestic political situation because it's like, you know, we're still dependent on one political vehicle to express our views uh, within America, and that is the Republican Party. I don't think you're going to see a, a third party emerge over this issue or anything of that. And if they are made dumber over this uh, conflict and that they're demanding for, you know, American intervention, they're demanding for war, they're demanding for money, for a greater number of money for Israel, and they're forgetting about the border, it's, you know, it's very bad for us for that to happen. And uh, I think that that's one possibility with it. And I think the major thing with on this war is that we should all you know, agree to is that we should have no American involvement in it. We should not be you know, writing blank checks for Tel Aviv. We should not be sending our naval fleet there to open up them the possibility of getting us attacked and then us dragging us into war. This would all be very bad for America and American interests and serious American interests. Even like the, you know, it's not only just like the real American interest, it's also even bad for the the global regime's interest to get into it. Uh, but they're so stupid on this issue that I could even see that that would happen. And so I think that's like the main interpretation you have to happen is that, you know, America needs to stay out. It's not our war. They can figure, these countries and, and actors can figure it out on their own. And... We just you know make sure it doesn't spread and becomes a worse war, which that involves America not getting involved in it, and our that would require America not getting involved in it. So that's my that's my view on the conflict and where it's heading, 
and but it's going to be an incredibly messy situation and i'm hoping that i'm proved wrong on this matter when it comes to funding is that republicans will focus on the border and immigration rather than israel when it comes to the next budget battle and you know the next house speaker will promise that that they're going to deliver on those results but i have um a strong feeling that the next House Speaker will ignore immigration and just focus on Israel and pretty much the entire Republican Party will follow. The only people who would resist this are Thomas Massey and Rand Paul. And that, that's, all, that's only, that's, uh, that's not guaranteed either. So you'd see the whole, unlike with Ukraine situation where you saw a number of Republicans, you know, opposing the unlimited money we're giving to Zelensky you would see hardly anyone uh, within the Republican Party and even within the conservative commentary, our mainstream conservative commentary, say, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. And that's just the nature of the Republican Party right now. And I think it's uh, it's unfortunate. It just sets us back. I know, And all these people, of course, people on the Internet, it's like, well, it's time for a third political force. Or, We're no longer voting. We're... We're escaping to the hinterlands. It's like, okay, that's not really going to solve the issue. So you really just have to push the GOP to make sure we don't get into a war and to rally around behind an anti-war message, uh, both in Ukraine and in Israel. And that has to be our consistent message there. And maybe that will have an effect on American politicians and say, like, our border matters more than Israel's border. And that's the message we should say loud and clear to our politicians. And hopefully enough of them listen that they should care more about our border than Israel. And that's all that we can hope for. But it's going to be a messy situation. I, I generally I generally am worried about what, what could happen with American getting uh, dragged into war here. And I'm, as I keep saying in the podcast, I am worried. I'm more worried about that possibility here than with... Ukraine. I mean, there is a chance that this blows over, you know, that Israel, you know, they just they end up just firing rockets and, you know, Hamas releases uh, hostages and they walk on home and that's it. But I don't think that's going to happen. This is going to be a long drawn out conflict, in my opinion. And because both sides don't, you know, Hamas doesn't want to make that agreement. You know, they want Israel to launch a ground war into Gaza Strip and the possibilities uh, of what could happen if that if that's what occurs are um, very interesting to say the least so we'll definitely keep an eye on this I think this is going to be the conflict that replaces Ukraine as the main global interest for you know foreign conflict and the one uh, unintended uh, consequence of this could be is that it draws down the Ukraine war. So we'll see. We'll keep an eye on this. I mean, I could be wrong about the Ukraine war, but I think, uh, you know, there's not an unlimited amount of military supplies to give to Ukraine or money. And people are going to have to choose. And if America had to choose, you know, our political leaders would obviously go with Israel. Now on to the Cotton League questions. We've got we've got three today, so we've got some good ones. And as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Convalete option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. We've got a new question from a person. I think he wants to go by Augsburg. So we will call him Augsburg. 
if he has a different name, please let us know if you want to go by something different. So he asks, hey, Scott, I remember a few weeks ago you retweeted a post that I thought was very insightful. It basically said something to the effect of if the right really thought abortion was murder, they would be way there would be rioting the streets, not peacefully petitioning the government. I'm pretty involved in a conservative Protestant church body, but I find myself frustrated that the only social issue they are willing to touch on is a, on a consistent basis is abortion. And they always reduce it to the issue of life, never the responsibility of the woman. In fact, they're more likely to blame male doctors than the woman choosing to kill her babies. That's typical. I feel like they use abortion as a catch-all issue to show we're conservative, but they're silent on the pressing social issues such as immigration identity. Do you think this is a general move that mainstream conservatives make to use abortion as a shield to show the right wing credibility so they don't have to discuss other more controversial issues? I'm about as anti-abortion as you can get, but I'm wary of it being such a central focus. Am I off base? No, you're exactly right. I think with, you know, gay marriage being legalized and other social issues changing is that the last thing that they're allowed or the last thing that they have to grasp on to show that they're socially conservative is abortion because they no longer you know the trans stuff now gives them a new thing but a lot of the trans focus is secular or not as typical of the religious right because it's all about like well they're threatening women's sports you know title nine you know conservatives become turned into the biggest defenders of title nine which is funny as i i cover this in the the iq supplement on richard hanani's book is that you know, in the past, you know, conservatives were attacking Title IX. It, it, it like enforces all this gender, you know, quotas on universities. It forces them to shut down real sports programs and create like a women's rowing team or other things, women's like curling team to meet Title IX requirements. And it also led to a lot of the insanity around campus rape hysteria where a guy could just be accused of rape by a woman and you know dubious accusation and they'd be kicked off campus this is all due to the title nine regime but due to trans athletes the threat of transgender athletes beating women and uh, track events they've now turned into the biggest defenders of t- title nine and all there's all these i was like seeing uh some sports event or like high school sports event and it like had conservative parents involved in that stuff and they were wearing shirts like defend title nine and it's like that's not social conservative at all so it's a lot of the trans issues isn't about that. So the last issue they have to show that like we care about religious conservatives, we care about evangelicals, we care about building a social conservative America is abortion. And that's why they emphasize it so much. And it's also that they don't have as much fear of being called bigoted or racist or sexist or homophobic over opposing abortion. And they really like to appeal to liberal values on it. It's like, oh, you know, abortion kills more blacks than whites and like black baby lives matter and they really use those arguments appealing to the liberal zeitgeist much more than they can on issues dealing with immigration identity and so they focus on that one issue above all else because in part that's like the last thing left to them and so they cling to it uh, you know fervently than they would any other issues and so it becomes a last limits test for them but you know, Trump is questioning a lot of that stuff over the intense focus of it. And he is exposing how a lot of the conservative base doesn't prioritize it as much as some of these groups and a lot of the uh, conservative activists who are involved in the D.C. you know, conservative Inc. 
care about the issue is that the grassroots, you know, they're very pro, they are pro-life, but they care more about immigration, crime, the economy, you know, the destruction of American identity. They care a lot of, about that stuff more than they do abortion. You know, it's, you know, they are pro-life, but it's not in their top priorities. And I always say that, and it's something that a lot of these uh, conning people don't get. They imagine that it's like the number one priority for them. But in fact, it's, you know, they are pro-life, but it's not the number one priority. It's not even the top five priorities for them. And so it creates that that gap between people. So, no, you're not off base. They want to make it the, the sole focus uh, because they don't get called bigots, uh, bigots over it. It's much more socially acceptable to be pro-life than it is to be anti-immigration. And they think that this can be the one issue, the social issue that they can care about to rally around the base and they can continue to pursue policies that are antithetical to a lot of the historic American people, whether it's immigration or crime or Black Lives Matter. They can just say, well, we're still very conservative. We're still pro-life. And isn't that all that matters to you? And for a lot of Republican voters, they're like, no, that's not all that matters to us. That's that's not good enough. So. That is a very good question, and I think you're not off base at all. It's very true. It's very it's stuff I've like covered a lot. But even to the first thing, it's yeah, I actually do. Uh, I don't know if I want to make that argument with, but a lot of people were making that tweet. If like if you think that this is general mass murder and stuff, and it's like your solution is just to complain about Trump all day on Twitter, as like, do you genuinely believe this? Are you genuinely putting your beliefs to? Uh, does your rhetoric actually genuinely match your beliefs and? There is something with that, but I think with a lot of the nature of a modern America is that people like think all these terrible things are happening and you would wonder, it's like, well, if you think this is so bad that it's happening, then why aren't you, uh, you know, rioting in the streets? You could say that about the Great Replacement and, and many other issues. So, but I do think that, you know, they, uh, you know, with pro-lifers that argument is more acceptable in the mainstream. It's like, you know, abortion is murder, abortion is genocide. And it's like our solution, complaining about the one guy who uh, overturned Roe v. Wade because he's not uh, he's not reaching our purity standard we have. And I don't think that's really what uh, is being accomplished with that. But that's what they'll go with. So that's a very good question. So that's a good very first question from him. I look forward to having more questions from Mr. Augsburg going forward. So next question we have, uh, it's not yet from New England Refugee. <laughs> he, is, he is actually, it's Jay. He's saying, uh, it's like another question from Jay. I'm concerned about the prestigious status of New England Refugee among the Codvalee questioner community. I hope nothing untoward is going on between the hosts of the highly respected podcast and New England Refugee. <laughs> That's even his real name. Uh, you know, everyone, can, you know, we want more New England refugees. I don't know if New England Refugee could be always the constant standard, but we always appreciate our regulars uh, sending as many questions as possible. Um, but you know, an England refugee is always committed to it. He's always has like a question the very next day. He's like e eager to have his question in, but there are usually very good questions, but we'll continue with Jay. It's like, you talk about the type of people that are on the right middle-class people on our side, talk about how good the left's patronage system is compared to the right. The middle-class on the right, more or less don't want to be taxed more. It seems like the left's political relationship and the rights are totally different for that reason. I'm wondering if you think there are advantages we have on our side from not having that strong patronage system as the left does. Are there things that the type of person on the right would have 
that would be an advantage to us. I'm thinking of the type of person that's a small business owner or independent contractor versus the type of person that is a corporate ladder climber. Different types of character. Well, I think the big difference here is that the left-wing constituencies, these voter blocks, are all demanding some type of gibbs. They're all demanding, you know, whether it's unions, blacks, Hispanics, single women, gays, they all have a type of gibbs. Or for gays and single women, it's more just like we need you committed to these certain social issues. But for blacks, Hispanics, unions, they're all like we demand this type of gibbs and you have to give it for us. For the right-wing constituency, there's no demand for Gibbs. You know, there's a demand that they, you know, stay strong on certain issues or principles or stay opposed to the left, but they're not as eager for Gibbs. Now, the good thing about this is this is principled and this is what we want people to have. We don't want people to be demanding wealth redistribution and, you know, expecting to be bought off with welfare or these handouts. You know, that's good for our people. That's like shows that there's a type of nobility in our type of voters. The one problem with this is, is that it's hard to increase this as like a voter block. And I've been seeing this type of argument. I don't know if this is what Jay is alluding to, but this is something that I've noticed is that a lot of people are like, we need to increase the white working class voter turnout. And it's like, that's how we win elections. There's a couple of problems with it. One, where I think we're maxing out white working class turnout and support at this moment. And there's not really a way to further advance it. Because there's not quite, you don't really, it's not like with blacks and Hispanics or any of these other type of voter blocks on the left. It's not like you adopt a certain issue and that ensures that they all turn out for you. Such as what's happened with abortion and Democrats and single women is that this one issue is encouraging more single women to vote Democrat. You don't really have that quite, you know, that magic issue for the white working class. A lot of them are, you know, animated by different interests or Different personalities are just attracted to a certain personality, such as how they are with Trump. You know, they feel Trump is their champion and they'll follow him no matter what. And if he's not on the ballot, they feel less inclined to vote Republican. But it's harder to maximize that turnout. And also the problem with going with maximum working white working class turnout engagement is that, you know, it minimizes your support among college educated whites, among the middle class whites. Which even though a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the non-college educated whites that I talk about are middle class and income, you know, I always make this point. It's like Trump's core supporters are blue collar culture, white collar incomes. And that's like his core support. It's like people who didn't go to college, but then they became a successful hot tub salesman or something, something like that. And that would be a core Trump supporter. But it's... um, you know, it's hard to, uh, or rather going back to the point with college-educated whites, is that a lot of times when you're maximizing non-college-educated white turnout and voter support, which already Republicans, or at least the Trump moment, is maximizing to its probably fullest extent that it can be hoped for, you also minimize middle-class or college-educated white support. And that's really what's becoming the problem with uh, Republican support is trying to win them back that college-educated white demographic, which it's hard to because unlike with blacks, you know, with, you know, Democrats were like, oh, we need to increase black turnout. Let's promise reparations or let's promise defund police. And that'll help get that voter block out. Or with, you know, with Hispanics, you know, it's like we're going to, you know, 
sometimes like well the immigration stuff doesn't actually quite do that but there's ways to appeal to them culturally and you know have these targeted messages to increase their turnout and it's the same with gays and single women and other groups it's harder with the republican core constituencies to uh turn out their turnout on specific issues you just kind of have to roll the dice and hope they turn out well democrats they can directly appeal it with like more gibbs and they can get their people out there but on to the advantages, I would say the advantage is one, it shows that there's a higher character to our voters than there is to Democrats. And two, I think they're more open to changing their views on a lot of issues than they would otherwise be than Democrats. I think for a lot of these Republicans, you know, they're very strong against illegal immigration, even though a lot of these small business owners um, unfortunately hire illegal immigrants and hire that. But they are convinced by a political commitment to this that they don't want more immigration, they don't want illegal immigrants, even though it could negatively impact their economic standing. But they're still committed to this out of a political desire, which with Democrats, you know, they will never support. Well, you know, the black community will still do that. But with immigration, even though that will directly impact them, they believe it won't impact them. You know, they think that it'll just further diminish white power in America. And that's why they support it. And as long as they get Gibbs, that's all that matters to them. With Republicans, they care more about the state of the country and where it's going. And so they will care about issues that are not directly in their purview or their narrow, petty issues. And they'll say that that's important to them much more than some of these certain demographics within the Democratic Party that are key to them. You know, unions just care about union power. Gays just care about gay issues for the most part. Single women mainly just care about abortion and birth control. And blacks care about Gibbs and same in some uh, regard with Hispanics. Uh, white liberals in general, uh, and probably including single women, are the only ones who have a full compass view of all their issues. But with Republicans, their constituents, they will care about issues that are outside their purview to repeat myself. They'll move beyond pettiness and they can they can be convinced to care about something, deeply care about something that's outside of Gibbs. And so that's one advantage, I think, uh, another advantage for Republicans on that. But that's a very good question, something uh, I require thinking on a, a bit more. So it's something uh, I'll definitely return to this topic in the future. It's something that I thought about a lot because I talked about this in an IQ supplement on McCarthy last week is that. Uh, you know, Democrats are driven by set voter caucuses where you can offer them something. This is actually a disadvantage. And that's what their voter base is. It's like, well, you know, the unions demand this or blacks demand this and they have to assign this. And, you know, they can be, you know, you do this one thing and that settles that constituency, whether it's like appointing a black woman as senator or something or promising more union expansion, something of that sort. With Republicans, it's harder to make those type of concessions because a lot of that core base is just a consumer market. It's like they're eating up uh, conservative media and they're demanding these type of things that aren't really Gibbs, aren't even really to their direct benefit, but they're just demanding it because they feel that that's what they learn on conservative media and that's what they want to do. And that could be both good and bad. And I think what's happening with McCarthy is that they've, been convinced that this, like removing McCarthy, is going to be a huge victory for them. 
and that they've wanted to remove him due to a lot of the influence over conservative media, and it's wildly entertaining. And then their office makers deliver on it, but it doesn't really deliver a direct benefit to them, and it can actually uh, hinder some of their political interests, but uh, they are driven. A lot of that conservative base, it's just more of, at least for the core media consumers, the ones commenting on Twitter, they aren't driven by these direct political demands. It's more of a consumer base, if, if you would. That's a, a one way of putting it. So it's more of a market um, rather than a, a block, uh, a voter, a voting block. So that's something to also consider. But we'll return to this topic more in the future. It's something very interesting to consider uh, the differences between the Republican Department. Republican Party and Democrat Party and how they operate and who are their core constituencies. But moving on to the final question, and who else could it be but New England refugee? And he is always asking good questions. We always love New England refugees questions. You know, he's always coming in the clutch. You know, there's the one week where we didn't have New England refugee and I was wondering what happened to him. Unfortunately, he came back the next week. So we were all set on New England refugee. But here's his question. Is there, hey Scott, is there any place that shows America declined more than airports? Absolute slobs everywhere and athleisure and many mystery people buried in their phones. Constant delays and magical breakdowns whenever, when they inevitably forget something begging for planes to wait on them. Does the average American notice how bad our infrastructure has gotten, or are they unaware like most things that are falling apart? Thanks. Also, I think New England Refugee was supposed to uh, clarify one uh, question from last week. He um, didn't embed it, but I guess he forgot his question, so that's okay. But if he remembers it, we will uh, we will be eagerly uh, uh, waiting for New England Refugee's question but this is true i've talked about this before is like if you ever want to witness what america is like now go to an airport and in the past you know air air travel was uh a little bit of a luxury it's like it wasn't for the hoi pola you know you had to have a bit of a money to go on air travel but now you really just see the full gamut of america at your airport and how the infrastructure is working it's just like terrible there's tons of delays and cancellations i know several people who just like now forsaken flying because they're just like i am tired of the cancellations and delays and for me personally unless it's like a drive over 10 hours i would rather drive somewhere you know if if i can make this place in under 12 hours i would drive there i don't want to fly and you know, driving is a way more relaxing experience. Even it's like compared, it's like I'd much rather drive 10 hours than fly two, two hours. You one, you make your own schedule. You're not cramped into, you know, uh, you know, a, a seat on the air, airline. You don't have to worry about things. You make your own schedule. It's just you and the road. And you're listening to the great tunes. You're listening to highly respected. You're listening to all the IQ supplements. You know, I just uh, I, I don't listen to my own podcast on on road trips. Just to clarify, but it's just a much more enjoyable experience. You just you and seeing American nature rather than seeing the American populace at airports. So yeah, I think it's uh, airlines. If you want to see American decline, it's like the airports. And it's also the worst thing that's happening is like now all these airlines are having racial quotas where they're putting unqualified people into the cockpit. And now we're seeing more near disasters and a lot more accidents. And a lot of this is due to this diversity push. 
and you're very much worried about this it's like the same with like surgeons you don't want like an un underqualified surgeon operating on you you'd also don't want an unqualified uh airline pilot flying your plane it's you know certain things you can lot you know be fine with an unqualified person like you know someone working at the dmv or you know, random corporate job, you know, it's not a, that's not a matter of life or death, but like surge, like doctors and airlines, that's a matter of life and death. And you don't really want that left to diversity rather than quality. And so that's another aspect about it. So yeah, anybody's like always wanting, like, let's experience real America. And they always imagine it's like going to some small town fantasy that they have this idyllic location. And that's real America. And it's like, well, that might be real America for you, but if you really want to see the full spectrum of American society and everyone in it, it's go to an airport. And do you feel proud and of what you're seeing? Do you see? Do you feel a positive upsurge in your country after witnessing the type of human capital at an airport? And most people would say no. And just even the experience of it, it's like you know, it's not like people, you know, all these people are crowded together. And it's not like you're making friends and, and, and participating in community. It's like everyone's just buried in their own little sphere. And everyone's like this degree of hostility towards each other. You know, it's like you can't even leave your bag unattended, you know, if you're going to the bathroom. You know, you can't trust like a random stranger to not steal your stuff. And it's always, you know, it's even like when, you know, you sit down waiting for your plane. You don't want to sit right next to a person because it's like, you know, you got to keep away from the stranger danger. So it's not even, it's like even that, it's like the atomization and isolation of the average American person is also illustrated at the airport as well, as well as our increasing diversification and and horrible infrastructure we're having thanks to diversity. So yes, if uh, my answer to that, is there any place that shows American decline more than the airports? I would say there is no other place that shows American decline more than the airports. And it is really something that you can experience all of American life in one place at one time and there's no other place like it for better or for worse so that's my take on that subject and that is it for highly respected today we're going to have a great iq supplement later this week and a great column as well so be on the lookout for that so until next time stay respected